I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Jennifer Thompson. Joining me in the studio today is Daniel Schaefer, investment banking correspondent and Brookmasters chief regulation correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at ex-Barclays chiefs being named in the LIBOR case after a high court judge rejected their request to remain anonymous. We'll discuss the lack of regulatory coordination on so-called living wills, plans to ensure more orderly wind-down in the event of a bank's collapse, and the news that Bank of America plans to move part of its business from Ireland to the UK. And finally, we'll discuss ultra repayments and the news that European banks plan to repay more than a quarter of the first tranche of cheap funding they took from the ECB at the height of the debt crisis. But to start off, Barclays. Last week, the FT revealed that Bob Diamond, Barclays' former chief executive, and Jerry Delmissier, its former chief operating officer, were on a shortlist of 25 individuals who were detailed anonymously in regulatory findings as part of the bank's LIBOR settlement back in June. The document is part of a wave of court papers made available after former and current employees of the bank lost an application to keep their names private during litigation. Dan, what does this list of names actually tell us? What's its significance? Uh, Firstly, I need to explain that what it doesn't tell us, which is it doesn't tell us that any of these individuals will necessarily have been involved in rate rigging or will have been implicated in any way. That's one very important point to mention. What it does tell us is that they have been mentioned in the settlement documents of the settlement we had in June, where Barclays was forced to pay £290 million for its part in the library rigging scandal. And that means they could have been mentioned because some of them did play a role in rate rigging, but also others could have been mentioned because simply because they, you know, they were superiors and they were questioning something or or any other email traffic or phone conversations they had. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is the whole ongoing trial did tell us in the past week something which we didn't know before about at what stage some of the most senior management actually seem to have had some sort of knowledge about what is going on. And we'd seen that through an email that was read out in court last week, actually before the list of 25 was published. And the email basically said, which was sent from a manager in the treasury to a submitter who was asking about guidance, how he should submit the rates. The email said, and I read it out, guidance, if you can call it that, from the 31st floor is that we don't stick our head above the parapet in any circumstance. That was taken as sort of an instruction to basically not submit too higher uh, LIBOR rate because at that time there were some banks who sort of stuck out of the pack in the sense they, were, they might have been paying a higher rate signaling that they would be in some sort of trouble and Barclays was worried about them being singled out having to pay too much in terms of their funding and therefore seeing as a weak bank. And the 31st floor being Barclays and slang for? The 31st floor is Barclays slang for basically the senior group management because that's where some of the senior group management offices, not all of them, but some of the, including the CEO are based at Barclays headquarters in Canary Wharf. And in hearings of the Parliamentary Banking Standards Commission, we heard that in October 2008, 
there were first sort of uh, instructions by senior management, in that case, Jared L. Messier, who at the time was chief operating officer, who instructed bankers to submit lower rates. What we didn't know was that some of this so-called guidance was given mm. already in 2007. And of course, this case is interesting because it's the first of its kind to stem from the wider LIBOR scandal in the UK. The bank is being sued by customers, including Guardian Care Homes based in, in Wolverhampton. Dan, can you just tell us quickly, why is this case so significant for Barclays and for other banks who could be implicated in LIBOR? Basically, Guardian Care Homes is suing Barclays because they bought a interest rate swap that was packed to LIBOR. And their argument is if LIBOR was manipulated then the whole LIBOR rate on which our swap was based has obviously been skewed and not in our favor. So we need to get compensation for that. And they are the first to sue a big bank in the UK on such an issue. If they were to be successful, then it could potentially trigger a lot of other customers coming out with the same claims and potentially could be a very, very big problem for some of the banks. But like all things to do with LIBOR, this could have months, if not years to run. So we'll have to wait on the next stage of that case. On to something that's happening today. The Financial Stability Board, a group of central bankers and regulators, are meeting to discuss guidance on banks preparing living wills. These are resolution plans to ensure a more orderly wind down in the event of a layman style collapse. The US regulators have warned the banks that countries may not work together to avoid the catastrophic failure of a financial group. Brooke, can you tell us a little bit more about this and whether or not it's a big concern? Well, the whole question of living wills, which are also known as recovering resolution plans, has been something that the global regulators have been trying to get banks to do now for three years. I mean, they were first asked to do it in 2010, and the UK is actually pretty far along. Its big banks have all written first drafts, as have all of the US banks. What's interesting is the U.S. guidance after getting everybody's first drafts on these plans was, guys, you've all assumed that we, the regulators, will solve all your problems and work out any cross-border conflicts. No. Go back and assume, what if we didn't work it out? What would happen next? The banks view this as catastrophic, saying, oh, my God, the regulators will never work together. This is really scary. I think the regulatory perspective is somewhat more nuanced, which is they would like to work together. In fact, the U.S. and the U.K. have done a pilot program to try to figure out how to work together. But they want to have a backup plan if it doesn't work. So I think right over the next three or four years, there's going to be a bit of a tussle where the regulators say to the banks, we want you to restructure so that even if we can't sort everything out for you, the legal ramifications of a collapse would be manageable. And the banks say, well, that's forcing us to completely redo the way we do business. And you, the regulators, ought to be grownups and fix the problem. So it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years exactly how this, this fight works itself out. Because, in fact, to do what the regulators want, the banks would have to completely redo their operations, or at least some of them would. And the banks Banks, not surprisingly, aren't really excited to do that. Of course, this was one of the topics at Davos last week, banks voicing concern over this disjoint on living wills. But for the regulators, I mean, what, what would their case potentially be? I mean, what challenges are they facing? It's, it's actually really difficult to deal with a very large failing bank because presumably it has placed crucial roles in payments and deposit systems around the world. I mean, think about City. It was in 100 countries and is cutting back. It's disastrous to try and sort out if city in the U.S. is going down, what does that mean for city in Poland? I mean, the regulators are genuinely looking at very difficult problems. And solvency law in Europe versus the U.S. is quite different. In the U.S., it's very much a if something goes insolvent, they want to stop it, cut it off, you know, end it, and let them restart. 
And in, in the UK, and even more so in continental Europe, if there's an insolvency, they basically freeze everything. Say, everybody stop, we'll figure out who's owed what, and five years from now, everybody will get exactly the fair amount. And it's much fairer than the American system, but it does make it very hard to keep things going. The regulators also have this issue that if part of a bank goes down in a country that's not big enough to bear its problems, then it's really disastrous for that country. And we're starting to see that play out today with the news that Bank of America is going to move its $50 billion derivatives books out of Ireland into the UK. There's a tax advantage to Bank of America to doing this. And there's a regulatory advantage for both Ireland and the UK because the Irish do not want to be responsible for $50 billion of derivatives. They've had enough bank rescues and they certainly don't want to rescue some American bank. The UK, meanwhile, most of the derivatives come through the UK and they are actually managed out of the UK, but the actual derivatives themselves are in Ireland, which is kind of a difficult problem. They've had issues in the past where somebody misbehaves with derivatives and the UK has no jurisdiction over the guy who actually did the bad behavior because he's in Ireland, even though it's directed by a bank that's in the UK. And so they would like everything where they can get their hand on it. And they're less worried. The size of the Maryland's derivative book is not that much bigger or smaller than Barclays. And so they feel a little more able to cope with it. That's actually probably something that's worked out pretty well is that they've consolidated management with the actual book, which is good. So will Ireland be happy or sad that uh, this business has been transferred to London? I think as long as they get to keep the people that go with the corporate banking arm, which they've said they're going to keep in Ireland, they're happy to say goodbye to the derivatives, which from their point of view is a lot of money running around with relatively few people attached to it. And it's the people that they want because they want the jobs and the, the employment. And we now turn to a sign of recovery. European banks have pledged to repay more than a quarter of the first tranche of cheap three-year funding made available to them by the ECB in 2011 and early 2012. The longer-term refinancing operations led the ECB to pump more than €1 trillion into about 800 European banks. The first possible repayment date is later this month, January the 30th, for funds lent in the first tranche, totalling around €489 billion. Just under 300 banks are to pay €137 billion on that date, according to the ECB. Dan, does this come in ahead of expectations? It's certainly quite a big number, but it's within expectations because analysts have been saying it's uh, between 100 and 200 billion would likely be repaid in the first tranche. What I have to say, it's a very positive sign showing how the funding in Europe's banking world has improved since the first LTRO was set up. You have to remember it was set up at a time at the end of 2011 when basically the European bank funding market was grinding to a halt. There was a danger that some even slightly bigger banks might collapse because they, they couldn't find funding. And so it was, it was a lifeline that was thrown to the banks. And now the, the fact that some of the mainly bigger, but also some smaller banks are repaying at least part of some and some even all of, of the LTRO money is a strong sign showing, you know, that, that funding has improved quite a lot. And it also chimes with what we hear in terms of anecdotal evidence from bank executives, that they are saying that they are actually now, some of them are flush with cash now. They've got more the problem of too much liquidity, which is part of the reason why some of them are paying it back, because although it's cheap money, it's it costs only 0.75% interest rates. Some of them had so much liquidity that they actually parked the LTO money back at the ECB, where they don't get any interest. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Jennifer Thompson. Joining me in the studio today is Daniel Schaefer, Investment Banking Correspondent and Brookmasters Chief Regulation Correspondent. 
This week, we'll take a look at ex-Barclays chiefs being named in the LIBOR case after a High Court judge rejected their request to remain anonymous. We'll discuss the lack of regulatory coordination on so-called living wills, plans to ensure more orderly wind-down in the event of a bank's collapse, and the news that Bank of America plans to move part of its business from Ireland to the UK. And finally, we'll discuss ultra repayments and the news that European banks plan to repay more than a quarter of the first tranche of cheap funding they took from the ECB at the height of the debt crisis. But to start off, Barclays. Last week, the FT revealed that Bob Diamond, Barclays' former chief executive, and Jerry Delmissier, its former chief operating officer, were on a short list of 25 individuals who were detailed anonymously in regulatory findings as part of the bank's LIBOR settlement back in June. The document is part of a wave of court papers made available after former and current employees of the bank lost an application to keep their names private during litigation. Dan, what does this list of names actually tell us? What's its significance? Uh, Firstly, I need to explain that what it doesn't tell us, which is it doesn't tell us that any of these individuals will necessarily have been involved in rate rigging or will have been implicated in any way. That's one very important point to mention. What it does tell us is that they have been mentioned in the settlement documents of the settlement we had in June, where Barclays was forced to pay £290 million for its part in the LIBOR rigging scandal. And that means they could have been mentioned because some of them did play a role in rate rigging, but also others could have been mentioned because simply because they, you know, they were superiors and they were questioning something or or any other email traffic or phone conversations they had. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is the whole ongoing trial did tell us in the past week something which we didn't know before about at what stage some of the most senior management actually seem to have had some sort of knowledge about what is going on. And we'd seen that through an email that was read out in court last week, actually before the list of 25 was published. And the email basically said, Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com. which was sent from a manager in the treasury to a submitter who was asking about guidance, how he should submit the rates. The email said, and I read it out, guidance, if you can call it that, from the 31st floor is that we don't stick our head above the parapet in any circumstance. That was taken as sort of an instruction to basically not submit too high a LIBOR rate, because at that time there were some banks who sort of stuck out of the pack in the sense that they might have been paying a higher rate, signaling that they would be in some sort of trouble. And Barclays was worried about them being singled out, having to pay too much in terms of their funding and therefore seeing as a weak bank. And the 31st floor being Barclays and slang for? The 31st floor is Barclays slang for basically the senior group management, because that's where some of the senior group management offices, not all of them, but some of the, including the CEO, are based at Barclays headquarters in Canary Wharf. And in hearings of the Parliamentary Banking Standards Commission, we heard that in October 2008, 
there were first sort of uh, instructions by senior management, in that case, Jared L. Messier, who at the time was chief operating officer, who instructed bankers to submit lower rates. What we didn't know was that some of this so-called guidance was given mm -hmm. already in 2007. And of course, this case is interesting because it's the first of its kind to stem from the wider LIBOR scandal in the UK. The bank is being sued by customers, including Guardian Care Homes based in, in Wolverhampton. Dan, can you just tell us quickly, why is this case so significant for Barclays and for other banks who could be implicated in LIBOR? Basically, Guardian Care Homes is suing Barclays because they bought a interest rate swap that was pegged to LIBOR. And their argument is if LIBOR was manipulated then the whole library on which our swap was based has obviously been skewed and not in our favor. So we need to get compensation for that. And they are the first to sue a big bank in the UK on such an issue. If they were to be successful, then it could potentially trigger a lot of other customers coming out with the same claims and potentially could be a very, very big problem for some of the banks. But like all things to do at LIBOR, this could have months, if not years to run. So we'll have to wait on the next stage of that case. On to something that's happening today. The Financial Stability Board, a group of central bankers and regulators, are meeting to discuss guidance on banks preparing living wills. These are resolution plans to ensure a more orderly wind down in the event of a layman style collapse. But US regulators have warned the banks that countries may not work together to avoid the catastrophic failure of a financial group. Brooke, can you tell us a little bit more about this and whether or not it's a big concern? Well, the whole question of living wills, which are also known as recovering resolution plans, has been something that the global regulators have been trying to get banks to do now for three years. I mean, they were first asked to do it in 2010, and the UK is actually pretty far along. Its big banks have all written first drafts, as have all of the US banks. What's interesting is the US guidance after getting everybody's first drafts on these plans was, guys, you've all assumed that we, the regulators, will solve all your problems and work out any cross-border conflicts. No. Go back and assume, what if we didn't work it out? What would happen next? The banks view this as catastrophic, saying, oh, my God, the regulators will never work together. This is really scary. I think the regulatory perspective is somewhat more nuanced, which is they would like to work together. In fact, the US and the UK have done a pilot program to try to figure out how to work together. But they want to have a backup plan if it doesn't work. So I think right over the next three or four years, there's going to be a bit of a tussle where the regulators say to the banks, we want you to restructure so that even if we can't sort everything out for you, the legal ramifications of a collapse would be manageable. And the banks say, well, that's forcing us to completely redo the way we do business. And you, the regulators, ought to be grownups and fix the problem. So it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years exactly how this, this fight works itself out. Because, in fact, to do what the regulators want, the banks would have to completely redo their operations, or at least some of them would. And the bank Banks, not surprisingly, aren't really excited to do that. Of course, this was one of the topics at Davos last week, banks voicing concern over this disjoint on living wills. But for the regulators, I mean, what, what would their case potentially be? I mean, what challenges are they facing? It's, it's actually really difficult to deal with a very large failing bank because presumably it has placed crucial roles in payments and deposit systems around the world. I mean, think about Citi. It was in 100 countries and is cutting back. It's disastrous to try and sort out if city in the U.S. is going down, what does that mean for city in Poland? I mean, the regulators are genuinely looking at very difficult problems. And solvency law in Europe versus the U.S. is quite different. In the U.S., it's very much a if something goes insolvent, they want to stop it, cut it off, you know, end it, let them restart. 
And in, in the UK and even more so in continental Europe, if there's an insolvency, they basically freeze everything. Say, everybody stop. We'll figure out who's owed what. And five years from now, everybody will get exactly the fair amount. And it's much fairer than the American system, but it does make it very hard to keep things going. The regulators also have this issue that if part of a bank goes down in a country that's not big enough to bear its problems, then it's really disastrous for that country. And we're starting to see that play out today with the news that Bank of America is going to move its $50 billion derivatives books out of Ireland into the UK. There's a tax advantage to Bank of America to doing this. And there's a regulatory advantage for both Ireland and the UK because the Irish do not want to be responsible for $50 billion of derivatives. They've had enough bank rescues and they certainly don't want to rescue some American bank. The UK, meanwhile, most of the derivatives come through the UK and they are actually managed out of the UK, but the actual derivatives themselves are in Ireland, which is kind of a difficult problem. They've had issues in the past where somebody misbehaves with derivatives and the UK has no jurisdiction over the guy who actually did the bad behavior because he's in Ireland, even though it's directed by a bank that's in the UK. And so they would like everything where they can get their hand on it. And they're less worried. The size of the Merrill Lynch derivative book is not that much bigger or smaller than Barclays. And so they feel a little more able to cope with it. That's actually probably something that's worked out pretty well is that they've consolidated management with the actual book, which is good. So will Ireland be happy or sad that uh, this business has been transferred to London? I think as long as they get to keep the people that go with the corporate banking arm, which they've said they're going to keep in Ireland, they're happy to say goodbye to the derivatives, which from their point of view is a lot of money running around with relatively few people attached to it. And it's the people that they want because they want the jobs and the, the employment. And we now turn to a sign of recovery. European banks have pledged to repay more than a quarter of the first tranche of cheap three-year funding made available to them by the ECB in 2011 and early 2012. The longer-term refinancing operations led the ECB to pump more than €1 trillion into about 800 European banks. The first possible repayment date is later this month, January the 30th, for funds lent in the first tranche, totalling around €489 billion. Just under 300 banks are to pay €137 billion on that date, according to the ECB. Dan, does this come in ahead of expectations? It's certainly quite a big number, but it's within expectations because analysts have been saying it's uh, between 100 and 200 billion would likely be repaid in the first tranche. What I have to say, it's a very positive sign showing how the funding in Europe's banking world has improved since the first LTRO was set up. You have to remember it was set up at a time at the end of 2011 when basically the European bank funding market was grinding to a halt. There was a danger that some even slightly bigger banks might collapse because they, they couldn't find funding. And so it was, it was a lifeline that was thrown to the banks. And now the, the fact that some of the mainly bigger, but also some smaller banks are repaying at least part of some and some even all of, of the LTRO money is a strong sign showing, you know, that, that funding has improved quite a lot. And it also chimes with what we hear in terms of anecdotal evidence from bank executives, that they are saying that they are actually now, some of them are flush with cash now. They've got more the problem of too much liquidity, which is part of the reason why some of them are paying it back, because although it's cheap money, it's it costs only 0.75% interest rates. Some of them had so much liquidity that they actually parked the LTRO money back at the ECB, where they don't get any interest rates paid on it. So they actually made a loss on LTRO. And what about banks who won't be paying back the funds? I mean, uh, the ECB did not disclose the identities of the institutions there were. But anecdotally, again, do you think we could be seeing evidence for two-speed recovery in Europeans' banks? 
that's the other element of it. As much as there is a positive sign that for particularly the big banks, the funding has improved a lot, there is now the danger that LTRO will become what it wasn't supposed to become, which is a stigma. Because now there's the danger that those who don't repay because they can't afford to, because they still, particularly banks in the south of Europe that might still not have access to the bank funding market, if they don't repay it, they could become stigmatized, which was why the LTRO in the first place was picked up by so many banks, because basically the ECB was pushing even the strong banks to take up LTRO funding in order to not make it a stigma. And that we will now might see happening, that some of the smaller banks are, you know, they are sort of stuck. They're still holding on to the LTRO money and they still can't access the general wider bank funding market. And is it just a question of size or is there a geographic skew in, in all of this? It's not so much a question of size as, as more of a geographic skew in terms of those banks that are based in the weak states of the eurozone the smaller ones there in particular have a problem whereas some of the larger banks in those jurisdictions they are even among those banks that are paying back LTRO because they got access to the funding market again as well and some analysts have said that banks in southern europe may be particularly likely to pay back a symbolic amount of money to as you say avoid this question of stigma Well, next month, there will be an opportunity for even more banks to pay back even more funds in the second opening to do so. This week, we have the delights of Deutsche Bank's results, as well as a slew of Spanish banking results. And it just remains for me to say thank you to Daniel and Brooke for their contributions and to you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at www.ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney and Connor Sullivan. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. I had some sort of knowledge about what is going on. And we'd seen that through an email that was read out in court last week, actually before the list of 25 was published. And the email basically said, which was sent from a manager in the treasury to a submitter who was asking about guidance, how he should submit the rates. The email said, and I read it out, guidance, if you can call it that, from the 31st floor is that we don't stick our head above the parapet in any circumstance. That was taken as sort of an instruction to basically not submit too higher LIBOR rate because at that time there were some banks who sort of stuck out of the pack in the sense they were they might have been paying a higher rate, signaling that they would be in some sort of trouble. And Barclays was worried about them being singled out, having to pay too much in terms of their funding and therefore seeing as a weak bank. And the 31st floor being Barclays and slang for? The 31st floor is Barclays slang for basically the senior group management, because that's where some of the senior group management offices, not all of them, but some of the, including the CEO, are based at Barclays. Forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney and Connor Sullivan. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.